chapter 7 this morning, Romans 7. Uh, many of you, most of you have been with us uh, since back in January when we began going through the book of Romans. Today, we, Lord willing, will finish up Romans 7. And then we'll go into what many consider uh, the greatest chapter of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Uh, and many consider this book of Romans to not be behind any book of Scripture. All of the Scripture, all 66 books are inspired. But uh, if, if you were to make a list of four or five books that, that if you could know what they were about, this is definitely one of the books. Uh, and we're in the heart of it, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Uh, we're in a very controversial section today, and that'll be our first point, is trying to choose a side in that, con- that controversy. Um, and you don't have to take the position that I'll end up putting forth. I will offer, obviously, my position. It will affect the way I preach the passage in a few minutes. But I also realize there's some folks been here just one or two weeks, or maybe this is your first time joining us, and I'm going to just go ahead and tell you you're at a little bit, a little bit of a disadvantage as we tackle... Uh, a section in Romans that's going to be very confusing by itself, even if you have been with us. So I want to give quickly a little bit of background before we read our text. Here we go. We ready? Back in Romans 1, Paul made a statement where he says, The just shall live by faith. And that ends up being kind of the theme of the whole book. Let me say it again. Those that are justified, the ones that God declares righteous and they'll get to live in heaven, the just, how, how will they live? By faith. Yeah, but what do they have to do? They have faith in what Jesus did on the cross. That's it. But I think as we go further and further in the book, we're going to realize the just are not only get eternal life, but they live this life by faith. The just shall live these lives. How? By faith. The same faith that saves us is the faith that we live the Christian life in. But here we are in a very difficult section. Paul has been talking about the law. And that's following laying it on thick. I mean, he's been laying it on thick, heavy. The only way to heaven is by faith. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. It, what was it, Friday? Friday. I uh, had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door. I immediately let them know, hey, you know, I'm a Baptist preacher. Well, that's fine. We like to have discussions. And they probably regretted having that 30-minute discussion. <laughs> but we very clearly, I mean, if we weren't long into it. And I said, we're going to have a big disagreement over Jesus. And sure enough, we did. And they said, who is Jesus to you? I said, he's God. And I said, you want to go to Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, John 1? He's God. Well, okay, yeah. And we, we realize we have a difference there. In uh, times, things, that's fine. We can kind of agree to disagree on. Uh, but they're very different. They, they, they believe a couple of things. One, even though they wouldn't say it as we were talking, I said, see, that's what I'm talking about. That's not by faith. That's you earning your way to heaven. And that goes exactly against what Scripture says. And the other is, it, it came, these two things typically go together. Uh, they don't have eternal security, which we're going to talk about when we get to the end of chapter 8 of Romans. I'm eternally secure. I, I got what's called eternal life, everlasting life, not 38-year life. Uh, when I got saved in 1979, I got something I can't lose because I didn't get it in the first place. And I can't do anything to muck it up and mess it up because if I could, I've already done it. And I haven't because... God means it when he gives eternal life. And so as I was talking to them, it just became clear they're very much in love with works. And, and I was emphasizing the grace of God that causes us to work. And so, again, back to Romans, where are we at? Paul's been just promoting the only way to be saved is by grace through faith. It's God's gift. I'm going to give it to you. You want it? I'll take it. How? By faith. So if you're thinking you get to heaven in any other way, you're fooling yourself. And so as we finally, again, I'm going to hit our passage in just a moment. As we get to chapter 7, Paul has been laying it on so thick and so heavy and so fervently that you're not saved by keeping the law. It almost comes across, this Paul fella is against the law of God. He's against the Ten Commandments. In fact, he begins chapter 7 by saying, all of us were born into this world. In, listen, this is you. You're born into this world married to the law. You are under its rules and its penalties. They apply to you. And he uses a husband and a wife analogy. And he says, biblically, the way to get out of that husband-wife relationship is one of you has to die. 
And so Paul says here, we, you, are married to the law. And you're going to stay married to the law all the way until you stand before God. And you're going to be judged by the law. And it's not going to go well. He says, what you need to do is die to the law. Like when a husband-wife is married, if one of them dies, the other is free to get remarried. You say, how in the world can you die to the law? And that's where it gets mystical and spiritual and tricky and theological. But here's what happened for me in 1979. I put my faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross counts for me. And I'm not going into it all, but the Bible talks about I was placed in Christ. And so since I'm in Christ spiritually, what he did on the cross counts as if I did it. And he really died for sin and I died for sin. I'm sorry, he died for sin and I died in him to sin. I died to sin. And I also died to the law. And so me and the law are no longer married and now I was able to be married to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so somebody reads that and I'm not going to re-preach last week's message but in verses 7 through 13 it says though Paul realized, I, I get it. Some of you are thinking, Hey, Paul, you're really down on the law. Are you saying that the law is sinful, that the law is bad? That I mean, if it's something we've got to get away from. He even goes so far as to say the law makes our sin count, our sin amount increase. Great, the law of God came 3,400 years ago. That'll fix us. No, it actually made us sin more. We sin more when the law came. We talked about when something is forbidden by God, that makes us want to do it even more. Or we find out something that we didn't even know was sin is sin. We don't stop. We just now know it's sin and our sin count increases. So Paul, I guess you're really down on the law. It serves no purpose. No, last week's passage we saw he gave us four purposes for the law. He says, number one, it exposes our sin. Listen, we need our sin exposed because if you don't have your sin exposed to you, you may go through life thinking you're good enough to go to heaven and you're not. So it's the law. Paul says, I wouldn't even have known that coveting, coveting is sin. Yes, coveting is sin. But the law doesn't just expose, oh, whoa, I have some sin problem. This is the tricky one. The law actually arouses and stirs up and like a blower in a room filled with dust, it stirs up the sin. It makes it even more obvious. You say, I would think God would want to put it down, turn the sprinklers on, you know, maybe going with a vacuum. No, God stirs up our sin by the law again, saying that's off limits. And when you tell our human nature something's off limits, now I really want to do it. And it exposes and arouses our sin. And Paul then says, it leads us. The law does not cause us to die spiritually, but it leads us to die spiritually. It's connected in that. And then finally, it makes us desperate for Christ what the phrase he uses at the end of verse 13, so that we become sinful beyond measure. God uses the law, and when I really understand the internal nature of the law, not just the easier externals, whoa, not just an act of adultery, but thinking a lustful thought, that sin, coveting, I like their shoes, I like her personality, I like their spouse, I like their house, I wish I had their job, I like their bank account. We look at that and we say, well, no one has a chance. We're just sinful all over to the core. Now you're ready to get saved because you're desperately seeking a Savior because you can't do it. And Paul says that's what the law does. It serves a purpose. So now what's going on in today's passage? I believe what today's passage is, is possibly for this, and it's tricky. I think it's Paul answering this. Here comes someone along and says, okay, okay, Paul, listen. We got it. We got it. No sinner can go to heaven by keeping the law of God. We got it. Jesus has to save us. But now that we're saved, hey, Jeff, you're talking to a room mostly full of saved people. Now that we're saved, the way we become godly and holy is now by keeping the law. Right, it wouldn't save us, but now that we are saved, we become godly and holy by keeping the laws of the Old Testament, Moses' law. And you know what Paul says? Wrong, wrong, wrong. That is not the answer. That will not work. Why? What's wrong? Paul's going to say in verse number 12, though the law is good and it is righteous and it is holy because it comes from a good, righteous, holy God. And even though the law is spiritual and it shows us the internal nature and all of those things, it's spiritual. Problem is, we don't like born married to the law, die in Christ to the law, get remarried. No, oh, by the way, now I want to also be remarried to the law again. Wrong answer. That's not how you become holy. And so what Paul is going to say here is, listen, the problem is not with the law. The law is fine. It's godly. 
Here's the issue. Would you join me in looking at verse 14? Very tricky passage this morning. Look, if you would, verse 14, we'll read down to verse 25. And here's the issue. It comes right at us out of the gate. For we know that the law is spiritual. That's true. Yeah, the law is spiritual. That's not the problem. Say, what's the problem? I am of the flesh. In chapter number 8, he's going to talk about those that are in the flesh. But Paul's admitting, I am of the flesh. Sold under sin. And that's a tricky three words right there. I am, here's the problem. The law, yes, it's spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Sold under sin. So me trying to keep the law still, even as a Christian, is not going to result in me being godly and holy. Why? What's the problem? Paul's saying the problem is I'm carnal. I'm earthbound. I live in a body that still has these appetites for sin. And now we see that described, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That it is good. The law is good. It's not the law's fault. I can't blame God for my sin problem before salvation or after salvation. It's not the law's fault. It just exposes and stirs up my issue. Verse 17. So now, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know... That nothing good dwells in me. And if he only stopped there, we'd say, wow, this is really different than what he has been saying. Look at verse 18 again. I know that nothing good dwells in me. But he qualifies it. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And right about now, if you've never heard this passage, you're thinking, this Paul fella is a little psychotic. He's got some, he's got two or three personalities working inside. I don't know what's going on. He needs to see a psychiatrist, verse 21. Paul says, so I find it to be a law. This is not a command, it's a principle. He says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. Catch that. In my inner being, I delight in the law of God. But I see in my members, he's talking about his, his fleshly, earthly mind, his eyes, his ears, his mouth, his hands and feet. He says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man. That I am. Wretched man. I'll just tell you this is what's happening. Whoever this is here. Verses 14 to 23. His conclusion of himself. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body. Of death. And he answers it in verse 25. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he kind of summarizes the passage. He says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Would you notice three things with me today in this passage? Very tricky passage. This is a disputed passage. This, listen, really, really good men who know a lot more about the Bible than I will ever in my lifetime. They forgot the old phrase. They forgot more about the Bible than I've ever learned. They disagree on this. And so we have to ask ourselves, number one, the question is, who is being described here? Who is this? 
And I'm going to go ahead and tip my hand. Uh, those of you know that I quote a fellow. I quote several people. I quote a fellow named John MacArthur quite a bit. And I'm going to borrow, I believe this came from his study Bible. Uh, and so I'm going to get literally half of my first point this morning borrowing from his take on this because it is so important. It'll end up being the longest point this morning. Uh, the body, the second point is the real body of the message, but the first one, we've got to try to figure this out. Who is being described here? Who is this person? And so, I'm going to borrow from MacArthur. He writes the following. Quote, Some interpret this chronicle of Paul's inner conflict as describing his life before Christ. So get that. Hey, excuse me, sir, you're a theologian. What do you think? Uh, This is an unsaved man. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, I see. That looks like definitely that and that and that. So again, back to the quote. He says, Some interpret this chronicle of Paul's inner conflict as describing his life, his life, Before Christ. Yeah, he was kind of talking about that earlier in chapter 7. He continues the quote. They point out that Paul describes the person. Listen to these three descriptions. Uh, They're not going to be on the screen. I'll just hit them quickly. Listen to the three things that he says about this person. They're sold under sin in verse number 14. Well, that doesn't sound like a Christian. Verse 18. They have nothing good in him. This person has nothing good in them. Now, if you remember, he put a qualifier about what that nothing good, where it is. He says, in my flesh, that is in my flesh. But here again, this, this person sold under sin, has nothing good in him. And in verse 24, he says, a wretched man trapped in a body of death. That has to be an unsaved man, right? That's, Paul is describing. And by the way, the church for the first 300 years of its existence, that's the official stance that most every theologian took for about 300 years until along come this fellow named Augustine and he kind of thought, well, what if there's another? And we'll talk about that in a second. So a lot of people say, no, 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 this is an unsaved person. This is before Paul got saved. Those descriptions, sold under sin, nothing good, wretched man, he continues. He says they contradict how Paul described believers in chapter 6. These will not be on the screen, but if you have your Bible open and you want to flip back to chapter 6, let me give you three quick verses that you'll say, yeah, that doesn't seem to match. Chapter 6, look at verse 2. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we, and we talk much about that, how can we continuously live habitually an unbroken pattern of life? How can we just wallow in sin on and on when we died to sin? We, note that, died to sin. Look down at verse number 6. He says, we know this chapter 6. Is this conflicting with chapter 7? Some say yes. Verse 6 says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And we said brought to nothing doesn't mean that it, it was, you know, the idea of, of non-existent. It just means powerless. It doesn't have the power. But look at the end of verse 6. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That sounds different. Again, verse 18 of chapter 6. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So those three descriptions in verses 2, 6, and 18 of chapter 6, those seem to go against the descriptions that Paul is using in chapter 7. So you say, okay, Jeff, well, I'm convinced that was easy. This is talking about an unsaved person. Let's finish the quote. MacArthur writes, he says, however, and I think this is on your handout, he says, it's correct to understand that Paul is speaking about a believer so, Jeff, what's your opinion on this, passion, on this passage? I believe this stance. I believe the passage is talking about a believer, a saved person. Why? He's going to offer six reasons. Number one, if you really paid attention to the passage, this person desires to obey God. This person hates his sin. And if you were to go back and really study chapter 6, and really if you want to go back and study chapter 1 and chapter 3, that is not an unsafe person. These, this phrase does not describe an unsafe person. He desires, and I don't mean just like little lip service. I mean in his core, he's exposing. This is inspired writing. He's saying, here's what's going on. I really want to serve God, and I hate my sin. That's not an unsafe person. Here's another. He humbly recognizes... Nothing good dwells in him. The average unsafe person believes this. Oh yeah, I do my wrong things, but I do these right things. And even my wrong things are not as bad as theirs. Surely God has to let me go to heaven. And that's the mentality that sends people to hell. So this is a safe person, humbly recognizing. Third thought is, he sees sin in himself. Yes, there is sin, but that's not all there is. Verse 22 He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Again, that is not an unsaved person. Person. 
And then as big as any is what happens in verse 25. This person being described serves Jesus Christ. He serves God. He serves the law of God. He serves the Lord Jesus Christ with his mind. That's his inner being. We'll talk at the end of the message. That's his spirit. That's what's going on. So again, if you were to go back and look at Romans 1, verses 18 to 21, verse 32 of chapter 1, chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, we talked about we're born in this world, our character, our conduct, our conversation, everything about us is sinful. Just leave us alone. We're not going to go to God. We're going away from God. And so Romans 7 here at the end, this is not describing an unsafe person. So Jeff, are those the main reasons you believe this is a believer? Those are part of it. I think the next two really seal the deal for me. To write this down, fourth or fifth reason. It's Paul's use of present tense verbs. We don't want to get technical, but when we read the Bible's guy, we have to read it historically, grammatically, contextually. And if you notice, if you were to just sit down and read all 25 verses of, of Romans 7, just back to back to back, read it five times, you'd notice, wow, past tense, past tense, past tense. All of a sudden, now he's flipped over. He's talking about present tense verbs. And so we draw this conclusion. He's describing his life currently as a Christian. Paul is describing his life as a Christian. And so for those reasons, we're talking about believers. Now watch. MacArthur correctly points this out. Going to shift. You ready? Shifting gears slightly. So if chapter 7 is talking about believers, and a lot of people have arrived, they, they, you know, again, for 300 years the church struggled with that, and then finally we get, okay, let's see, is this a possibility? Well, that does make sense. Yeah, it does seem to be talking about believers. But now if, once you get a room full of 100 theologians who agree this is talking about believers, you're still going to find disagreement among three or four or five different thoughts about believers. I'm only going to offer to you three. Some would say, oh, yeah, he's absolutely talking about believers. He's talking about fleshly carnal, a word that you hear in our vernacular these days. Yeah, he's talking about backslidden Christians. That's what chapter 7 is. They're backslidden Christians whose life are still full of sin. They don't realize they've been freed from sin. That's what's going on. That's chapter 7. Here's a second group. No, no, no. It's not outwardly fleshly sinful Christians. It's legalistic Christians. These are Christians who, like I, I opened with, they believe Jesus to save them, but now that they're saved, they think the way to be holy and godly is to now memorize the Ten Commandments and the 613 Commandments in the Old Testament. And if I can go through life checking those off, now I'm godly, never realizing that there's this whole internal aspect of the law of God, and I'm coming up short. And they've never figured out the real power of the Christian life is the Holy Spirit in us creating love for God. They don't know that. And so they're still down here in the fray. Watch this. And as long as they're in that, they've yet to rise above the struggle they're still struggling with sin. Did you catch that? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 this is believers. Some say, yeah, fleshly, carnal, earthbound, sinful, backslidden. Others say, no, 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 they're outwardly good, but they're, just, they're frustrated because they're trying to keep the laws and means of holiness. They don't know about the power of the Holy Spirit. And when they ever figure that out, they're going to rise above the fray, and they'll be above the struggle, like me. Say, is there a third view? Would you write this down? The personal pronoun I refers, MacArthur offers this again. Personal pronoun I refers to the Apostle Paul, a standard of spiritual health and maturity. See, I don't think Paul ever had a point in his life where he was legalistic. After he got saved, he was legalistically trying and where you'd say, boy, that guy's living fleshly, carnal, backslidden. He needs... I don't think Paul ever had that. You say, so what's Paul describing himself then? He's looked at his life. At this point, he's been saved probably between 15, 18, 20 years as a Christian. This is AD 56. He's writing this letter. You say, seriously, you think Paul is describing himself? The last little note I'm going to use here that will be in your notes from MacArthur, I, I included it because it's the key one of everything you've written so far. Write this down. Here's his conclusion. So in verse 14 to 25, Paul must be describing all Christians, here's the line, even the most spiritual and mature. And we read that and say there's no way that is the spiritual and mature Christian in Romans chapter 7. I agree with what he writes. He says it's even the, the most spiritual and mature. Here's the key. Here's what makes it. Here's what makes them reach these conclusions in chapter 7. He says, even the most spiritual and mature, who when they honestly, if anyone will do this, they'll reach Romans 7 conclusions. 
who when they honestly evaluate themselves against the righteous standard of God's law, they realize how far short they fall. Why? Because they start realizing it's spiritual. You would look at them and say, no, 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 you're godly, you're holy, you're the best Christian I know. And they would say, yes, but I'm getting, you think that, but I'm getting closer and closer to God. And the closer I get to God, the more I see the real me and I see the law and its internal demands. I've got so far to go. I've got so far to go. Have you ever put yourself beside the law of God after you've become a Christian? I promise you, if I don't care how holy you get, if you put yourself beside the internal demands of the law, you're going to come to some of the conclusions and some of the frustrations that Paul describes in Romans 7. I believe these, these verses describe a mature Christian, a spiritual believer's view of themselves. Why? Because the closer we get to God, the more we see our inward sin. Let me throw these at you. You've heard them before. Isaiah 6, verse 5. Isaiah sees a vision. Of God. I mean, he really sees God. And what's his conclusion? Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Job 42 verse 6. I mean, you hardly see any fault with this man. This is the most godly man of his day. What's his conclusion of himself? I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Not you, Job. You're the best of the best. He said, no. The closer I get to God, the more I see my inward problems. And he has these frustrations. 1 John 1, here's the last remaining apostle, 80-some years old, all the others have passed away, and he's writing to people about loving and about believing and about obeying God and living out of love. And you know what he says? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. So Jeff, what do you think is going on in chapter 7? I'm going to tell you. I think Paul this morning is telling us this. Hey, y'all want to see? All right, you, you want to break me down? You want to get a glimpse inside the great apostle Paul? Well, it's not as pretty and polished as you think. It's quite ugly. No, Paul, you're our leader. You're the greatest theologian in history outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're this godly man. You're changing the world. You're doing all the right things externally, and you're abstaining from all the, all the wrong things externally. Paul says, you want to really see? Look, here's what's going on. It's nasty. You want to see me? We have 1 John 1, 8. Let's join verse 10 to it. Look at 1 John 1, 10. If we say we have not sinned. No, 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 not me. I've not committed acts of sin. And back to verse 8. Oh, no, no, no. I don't have a sin nature. That's back when I was unsaved. I've risen above that. I don't commit acts of sin and I don't have temptation towards sin. Lie, lie, lie. You are deceiving yourself. You're making God out to be a liar. His truth is not in you. I believe we do two serious disservices when we adopt extremes. So we've read the passage. It is too big for us to go line by line this morning. But I'm going to wrap up this first thought this way. You ready? Please don't walk away with either of these two extremes. Here's extreme number one. Well, okay, if this is a mature spiritual Christian, and this is what Paul says about himself, well, then I guess God's okay with sin. Don't believe that. Hey, young person, please don't walk out of here today and say, hey, the culture is the way it is. This is the version of Christianity I see in 2017 in America, and I'm better than most of that. Yeah, I have these things going on in my life, and look, Paul had struggles. He did the things he hated. He didn't do the things he really wanted to do, and that's me. God's okay with sin. And so you make a little deal with sin in your life. Hey, I'm still going to heaven and I'll try to do some good things and I'll try to abstain from most of the really bad things, but it's okay. And here's the other part of that lie. Being defeated continuously in the Christian life, I guess that's what Paul's describing, is continual defeat of having any victory over sin in your life. And that's normal. That's just normal. So Pastor Jeff just got up and he says, you know what, being defeated is normal. We're all just still in, in these bodies that have this foothold of sin and we still have appetites for sin. It's okay. God's not really worried about it. And it's all right. Let's just enjoy the ride. You just adopted a wrong extreme. I hope you don't ever attach my name to that. That is not the conclusion of this passage. 
This is a man who is pulling apart details and he's frustrated because there are times he's, he's not showing you all the good. He's going to get that in chapter 8, all the good that God's doing in his life. He's showing you the worst of him. But we're going to see what we really have to do is couple this next week as we start chapter 8. God is really doing a great work in his life. You say, okay, extreme number one, God don't really care about sin. Continuously being defeated in sin, that's kind of normal. Here's the other extreme. We do a disservice when we lie to Christians by implying that some of us don't sin. And we imply to them, hey, some of us, we don't sin, and something's wrong with you if you don't get up here where we're at. Oh, you're still down there struggling with sin every day. And you file into grace view and like, man, I just feel terrible. He keeps preaching. He keeps using those Ten Commandments, and it beats me up like crazy. It's nothing he's doing personally. The Bible just keeps beating me up. I'm just a dog, and I'm the worst of the worst. One of these days, I need to be like the pastor or my Sunday school teacher because they're really godly. And they don't fight sin like I fight. If we ever give you that impression, we have done you a disservice. Don't go to the conference where they're on the big stage and they're gifted and thousands of people have come into the arena and they challenged you and they were spirit-filled. If you walk away, I don't care who he or she is, and you walk away thinking, man, if I could just be like him or like her, then I would not struggle with sin like I do. Don't you believe it? Don't put us on that pedestal. Sorry, you got a pastor that still loves sin. And it still tugs and pulls and sometimes he loses the battle. We like to put grandma, grandma, right? But my grandma, she doesn't sin. Grandma's great. <laughs> grandma has a sin nature and I don't, if she doesn't show it outwardly, I'm telling you inwardly she's struggling. She's struggling. Second point this morning. Not only is the question, all right, who is this? I believe it's a believer and I believe it's a spiritual. This is a person who's, I mean, this is, this is the good Christian. So secondly, what do we find in this passage is the ongoing struggle with sin. So here's the real heart of the passage, the ongoing struggle with sin. So I'm going to go back to a little bit of what I said earlier. Somebody may ask, all right, Jeff, what was it that caused you to lean toward that interpretation? Because some really good people believe it's unsaved person here. I'm going to go and tell you two things I've already mentioned. Number one is the pronouns, the I and the me. Man, that's pretty strong. This is Paul. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's him before he got saved. No, the verbs, it's, it went from I was alive, then I died, past tense, past tense, past tense, all of a sudden, presence, I do, I don't do. Like, whoa, this is to me very clear, very strong evidence, but I want to tell you the other thing. I know me. So, Jeff, what leads you to think that this is a Christian? He's talking about, about a believer. I know me. Here's what I know. When I take what Paul writes in Romans 7, 14 to 25, and I put it beside my life the last 38 years as a Christian, it's like, Paul, you were writing about me. This is, this is me. I could sign my name. So as I look at the text and life, I come to three conclusions that make up our second point. Three, to me, indisputable conclusions. Test yourself. No way I can go through and pick line by line like we usually do. This is such a big passage. I thought about splitting it, but it's like, no, I'll get lost and we'll lose the flow. We're going to hit it one Sunday. First conclusion, and I stand by this. Number one, true Christians love God. And they love his word. Would you look at verse number 22? Paul is talking about himself as an apostle 15, 18, 20 years into the Christian life. So, so in love with God and living the Christian life victoriously that he's talking about points along his past. And he, but he, he writes all the negatives that he writes. But he has to be honest. In verse number 22 he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Say, so Jeff, what's some of your conclusion? Here's my conclusion. I, I stand by this. True Christians love God. True Christians love his word. Wrote myself a little note over on the side of my notes, a little handwritten beyond the typed ones. Here's what it says. These may not be as true as they should be sometimes, but they are true of me. I know I refer to my former pastor so many times, but I remember he, he, we would sing, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. 
And it's sing that song. But when we get to the chorus, that little line that says, If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. He would not sing. Because he didn't want to sing a lie. And if you did see him singing, If ever I love thee, then you knew Charlie's right with God today. <laughs> he's, he's on a mountaintop this morning. The only time he would sing it every time was the last verse. When in mansions of glory and endless delight. And then he gets to that chorus. He says, if ever I love thee. My Jesus, tis now when I get to the mansions of glory. Yes. And he would sing that one confidently. I tell you this. I don't always love him like I should. I don't always love the word like I should. But I do love him. And I love his word. I'm going to go so far as to say, if you do not, something's wrong. You ought to question your Christianity if you do not. Believers, according to verse 22, delight in God's law in their inner spirit. Literally, I'm going to tell you what happened to me Thursday. I tried to look at the text Tuesday. I kind of had Wednesday night on the brain. Briefly look at this. Confusing. Come back to it Wednesday afternoon. Look at it some more. Confusing. Not getting a handle on it. Think I'm going to look at it Wednesday night. Read a couple times. It's like, man, I'm tired. Brain's fried. Let's give it a better shot tomorrow. Thursday, I'm looking at it. Finish the time of prayer. I decide I'm going to stay home. I'm going to stay right here. I'm in my little chair that I have prayer time and private devotions. And I've kind of found that to be a fruitful Thursday morning time. So I'm, I'm there. I'm studying this. And all of a sudden, it was locked and locked. And I couldn't make sense. Is this talking about? And I've read that before. And what's going on? And it just seemed to kind of be clouded. And then all of a sudden, it was as though the Lord started saying, here's what that means. Here's what that means. And little phrases started connecting. And I remember I got up from my, from my little rocker, lazy boy type chair. Erica was gone. Jonathan was still in his room. Deanna had gone back to her room. I'm getting up to get coffee. And I literally, I wrote it down. I said this out loud. I love it when you start talking. Got my empty cup, getting ready to go refill it. Mumbled that. Took three steps and realized, that's exactly, i got to go back and write this note. So here's a cycle. I turned around and wrote the note that I was thinking about writing. About an idea of loving the Lord's word. And it happened. Like that. Can I tell you something? That same dynamic is in some of you. Some of you, you love Sunday morning. It's not always easy to get here, but you, can't, you, you find yourself, I love it when I'm sitting here and all of a sudden the truth starts ringing and my spirit bears witness with God's spirit and the word of God bears witness with my spirit. And like, I, I struggle with that or yes, I need to be reminded of that. It's like, man, it's beating me up today, but I love getting beat up by the word of God or I'm, bit, I'm picked up or I'm exuberated or it makes me want to praise him, whatever it may be. Today is not a goosebump message. I get it. It's not. We'll get to those in chapter 8. You love private times when God starts talking. Second thing I realize, a major dynamic of this passage, not only do true Christians love God and love his word, they really do. Second thing I've learned here is true Christians hate sin. True Christians hate sin. You say, yeah, Jeff, everybody hates sin. We all hate the consequences of sin. I'm going to borrow from MacArthur one more time. I'm not going to give all the points that he gave, but I want you to hear this list. Why do Christians hate sin? You say, yeah, Jeff, everybody hates sin. But for a Christian, it's more than just the other consequences, pain and loss and all that. Watch this. Why do Christians hate sin? Can't go into the text, but I'll give them to you. It dishonors God. Paul says our bodies in 1 Corinthians 6, our body is the holy of holies. The Holy Spirit lives in here. God, when I sin, it dishonors you. Here's another one, separate thought. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Your Holy Spirit lives in me and it grieves you. You're, having, you're in here with me and I'm grieving you by my sin. A third one, it's keeping my prayers from getting answered. It's causing my spiritual life to be powerless. I'm trying to minister, but nothing good's happening because I have sin in my life. Check yourself. Do you hate your sin? It robs me of the joy of my salvation. It's blocked. It's cloudy. I'm living in the gray. It hinders spiritual growth. God, I'm wasting hours and days and a whole week of my life because I have sin. It's hindering my spiritual growth. And then it brings chastisement. Oh, yeah, everybody hates that part. But a Christian realizes it's God as a loving father will chasten me because he loves me. He's not going to let me stay in this sin. And it pollutes our fellowship. 
You come to church. You know what's great is when you're at church and you're light and free and you're not bound by sin and you encounter a brother or sister in Christ and they're light and free and you can kind of tell it and there's that and then you come over here and there's somebody else and it's like, well, they're bound up by sin. You can just sense it. Or you're the one bound up by sin that day and it's just like, man, just hate sin. Just hate sin. You ever seen someone who just lost a loved one and they know they'll never see him again and the child is hyperventilating because mom or dad died? And you ever thought this? I hate I hate sin. How have you done? Do you love God? You say, I don't love him like I should, but I do love God. And I do love his word. Do you hate sin? You're like, that list rings true. I hate it. I know what Paul is saying. Well, if you went two for two, I know you're going to go three for three because the third thing is true Christians still struggle with sin. You say, yeah, but we love God and we hate sin. Yeah, but we still struggle with sin. That's the fact. Would you look at verse 15? There's two phrases I want you to see. First of all, look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's like a little boy. A little boy who just did something he shouldn't have done. Hey, buddy, what did you do that for? I don't know. No, 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 you got to have a reason. You knew it was wrong. You knew, you knew me and your mama said not do it right. I don't know. Paul is literally saying, I don't know why I don't see full victory over sin. I don't get it. I'm confused by this. I don't understand. And then the second thing in verse 15 is what we just talked about. Look at verse 15 again. He says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I hate it. But I thought, if you hate it, you won't do it. But I find myself, I don't understand. I do what I hate. And if you're sitting here this morning saying, well, that doesn't describe me. Well, praise the Lord, I need to hang around you. Because you're a whole lot higher than I am. Check yourself. Do any of these describe you? You ever done something you hate? Have you ever blew by a calorie count that you put? And I don't mean like at the end of the day and you got your little app and like, oh man, I went over by 180. I ain't talking about that. I mean blew by the calorie count. Some of you like, you know what I mean? Where you're going to give yourself a little, little cheat, little treat. Kind of earned it, been good all week. And it's supposed to be two Oreos and it's a sleeve. <laughs> Y'all been there. I know you know what I'm talking about. You got your little Whitman sampler over here and you're going to get two pieces. And before you know it, the whole top's gone and it was a brand new box. That's what I'm talking about. And it's funny right now, isn't it? But when you get alone, why'd I do that? And we always get really resolute when our stomach's full. Tomorrow, one thing I've noticed, here's another example. You got the fiscally conservative spouse with the spender. If you're the spender, you probably know you are. You ever overspent the budget again? You went down to commerce and you had an amount of money and you kind of saved from here and you saved from there and people gave you that, people gave you that and you got this little bit and you know there's this much and you go with somebody and they're not on a budget and before you know what you thought was going to be just two hours to Gaffney or the outlets down at commerce all of a sudden next thing you know, oh no, what have I done? They're going to see it. And you didn't just, again, just a few dollars. It's like... I did, I hate, why do I do that? I hate this. You really do hate it. You like the new stuff though? I'm thinking of some of the college kids here today. Have you ever done this? You know you're a procrastinator and you have a deadline. And you, man, I'm doing it this time. I'm really going to. Because I know when I procrastinate, usually I don't give my best. I'm tired of that. I am meeting this day. And the first day, well, you go home and you put an hour, hour and a half into it. And you're off good. Enough. I need to go do that thing. Tomorrow I'm going to. And tomorrow you end up getting a little distracted with that. Before you know it, two weeks is gone. And all of a sudden it's due. And it's 1 a.m. And I did it again. I swore I wouldn't do that. This literally describes someone here this morning. I don't know your name, but you yelled at the kids. And you've told yourself, I am not going to be one of those parents. I'm not going to be a yeller. I'm not going to do that. But you yelled at the kids just two days after a resolution. You promised just two days. And you justify it in front of them while you had a reason but when you get in the private, boom, 
What's wrong with me? Here's one. Ah. You ever done this? The silent treatment is allowed to last another night. Though you swore when you left that morning in the car, it isn't even all my fault, but I am addressing this tonight. And then another night goes on. And you hate it. You hate it. Here's one. You failed to talk to the hairdresser about Jesus, though you promised God just Sunday morning that you would. And you meant it. But Thursday find you not quite as emotional as you were Sunday morning. Maybe there's a young person you say, I am so sick and tired. They'll have to give an account. I have to give an account of me. And I've had a rotten, sinking attitude toward mom and dad. And it comes out in tone and body language. And I'm not doing that again. And you do it again. And you hate it. You ever been here? I have. You gave this week way more information on someone than was needed for that conversation. And you had adopted a zero tolerance for gossip and slander that week. And you walk back and you walk away. And even while you're doing it, the, the Holy Spirit does his job and goes thump, 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 thump. But it's juicy. And you blow right by it, right? I'm glad y'all don't know what I'm talking about. Anybody here just this week, you viewed again what you swore you wouldn't because you know this is atrophying my soul. My soul is shriveling and dying and I'm getting deeper and deeper. And you swore I'm going to go a whole week without looking at this and you made it three, almost four days. Boom. And you were minding your own business and there it came. There'll be a verse. We'll go ahead and put Matthew 26 on the screen but I'm going to read the verse around it, okay? You'll see Matthew 26. If you want to turn your Bible there very quickly, it's Matthew 26. We're going to look at verse 35, but I'm going to make a quick point. Watch this. It's just hours before, just moments, literally before Jesus will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, you're not going to see these verses, but back in verse 31 of Matthew 26, watch this dynamic. Jesus said to them, to the eleven, Judas is off betraying him. Jesus said to them, to the eleven, this is an amazing passage, it's kind of eerie almost. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Fellas, all of you are going to leave me tonight. But after I'm raised up, here's the good news. Remember, I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to come back to life. And then he says, I will go before you to Galilee. So I want us to meet again up in Galilee. He's given, and they're, not, they're going to forget this until after the fact. And they're going to remember, oh, Galilee. Remember, he told us. But look at Peter, verse 33, bless his heart. Peter answered him, though, I wonder if he pointed, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Hey guys, tonight all of you are going to fall away because of me. Lord, I don't know about those guys. No offense guys, I love you. but They may fall away. I'm not falling away. I will never fall away. And just before our text, Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, truly, Peter, I'm telling you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then you see our text. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. What are you talking about? I am ready to die with you. And all the disciples said the same. Lord, no, we will, we will die with you. We don't think you're going to die, but if you really are going to die, there's no way we will never deny you. We're never going to run away from you. It can't happen. And Peter especially, I will never, I'll die with you. Those losers might leave. I will not. I promise you, Lord. And by the way, can I tell you something? He meant it. He meant it. If you've ever made a decision on a Sunday morning in a church service or at a camp and you meant it, Peter meant it more. Here's your note. Every Christian's past has proven by themselves. Even the strongest resolutions do not keep us from sin. Peter's will failed him in the moment just like your will has failed you in the moment. You meant it. In a moment, I'm going to talk about Harley the dog, but I'm going to just tease you with it. You ready? There are times where Harley the dog at our house has sat beside Deanna, and I've just looked at him, and I hear him. I'm like, oh. And she'll start rubbing, rubbing the ears and rubbing the side. And the blankets are just right and it's the evening. 
Honestly, if there was one of those little cartoon bubbles, I could fill in what that little dog's thinking. Here's what he's thinking. This is the best. I could never want any. That's what he's thinking. I know what you're thinking over there, a little hard time. You're thinking, I could lie here forever. Literally eternity. I just love right here beside Mama Deanna. Love it. Couldn't want anything else. I'll come back to that in a moment. How many times as a young couple, they love each other, love each other, and they mean it. And y'all, you've even said these words. If tonight could last forever, it can't be better than this. It'll always be like this. I'll always, insert Whitney Houston, I'll always love you. I just love you. And you mean it. You mean it. Five years ago. That's what Paul's saying. But back to Romans, verse number 21, he says, that's real. But I find it to be a law. I find a principle. This is not a command. I just find a principle like the law of gravity. There's a law that when I, on the inside, something on the inside, I want to do what's right. The Bible says evil lies close at hand. I want to do what's right on the inside, but beside me, so inside's good, but beside is not good because there's, it's evil, it's lurking. And oh, I say you, you meant it. Chris and the team are playing and Jeff's trying to drive home an application of the message and you are going to tell the hairdresser on Thursday they will hear your faith and you really mean it but life hits between now and Thursday and I'm not going to talk about Jesus. You mean it. Peter means it. Verse 21, I find a law. You know what Paul is? Paul says I'm a spiritual scientist. So think about again. You're checking your hair and you're checking your teeth and you're checking your makeup and you're checking how your clothes are fitting. Are you monitoring your spiritual life? Because Paul is saying, I'm a spiritual scientist. I'm evaluating my spiritual life. I'm high and I'm low. And here's what I found. Every time I'm really desirous to do the right thing, evil's not far away. It's right there. And that brings us down the home stretch. You say, Jeff, this sounds very, very depressing. The guarantee of hope. I want to leave you with hope this morning. The guarantee of hope. Verse number 24. First we see the frustration culminated, climaxed. Verse 24, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. All along through the whole passage, if you were to go home and read it again and again, here's what you'd find. There are three forces at work in you. Number one, write it down, your new nature in Christ. If you're a Christian, you were born into this world with a body that I'm looking at, A soul that's awake and aware, but a spirit, and I don't understand the difference. Talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses on Friday. I don't know the difference, but the Bible says there's a difference between soul and spirit. And the Word of God splits the difference. God knows the difference. I don't. I know the body versus the immaterial part of us. But listen, your soul is awake and aware, every one of us, but we were all born with a dead spirit. But when you put your faith in Jesus... For me, it was 1979. Insert your date. You say, I don't have a time. Today needs to be the day you do that. Because here's what happens. When you put your faith in Christ, He literally awakens, quickens, brings to life your dead spirit. It's called regeneration. It's amazing. A part of you that wasn't there before, all of a sudden, inside your body is now there. And it is real. And it's great. And this part of you now loves God, loves His Word, and it hates sin. You say, great. Everything should go fine. Second thing he's been hinting at is your old sin nature still lingers. Look at verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse number 20. I didn't make this up. I would not have worded it this way, but Paul just cuts right to the chase. I mean, this is theology. He says, now if I do... What I do not want, it's no longer I. He, by the way, he is not passing the buck. He's not casting it off blame. He's not just quitting. Verse 20, he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse number 23. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I'm going to read a quick note because it gets across an idea. This is tricky. This is subtle. Listen. These verses are clear that sin still dwells in us. 
It's not so much that sin died in me and in you, but that we died to sin. If you go back and check, check chapter 6, we died to sin. You say, sin dies in us, we die to sin. What's the difference? Big difference. Sin still dwells, but after Christ, we're not such good hosts anymore. We're not the host we used to be. Sin still dwells, but it's no longer on the throne of our heart with absolute power. It, and by the way, sin doesn't like this. Sin used to sit on the throne and have absolute power. All of a sudden, you got saved. Sin is not driven out, but now you are not responsive to sin quite like you were before. And then who's this new person on the throne? And there's a whole new you. So a new you, but I hear sin's been kicked over here. But he still wants to get back in his place and he wants to fool you into thinking he's still the boss. And so what does he do? He plays off your body's desires. You like food. And he wants to turn food into a god. What time's lunch? Didn't we just start today? What time's lunch? Hey, it's almost noon. Hey, we're the worship service. Forget that. I'm stopping. It's 12 o'clock. It's time to quit. Oh, yeah. Our body needs food. I don't think anybody's going to fall out and die, though, if we go... A minute past 12. Our body needs rest. Sin says, just sleep all the time. Our body likes to be productive. Well, let's make work our God, our identity. And you become a workaholic and a perfectionist. Sin, sin, sin. Our bodies, God made us with sexual desires. But sin comes in and says, I'm going to take those desires that God put in you and we're going to pervert them and make them sinful. You have a desire to be social and have relationships. But sin comes in and says, let's use our relationships to tear people down and put doubt and question on other people. It's called slander and gossip and lies. And so Paul reaches a culmination, verse 24. Wretched man that I am. I'm not being disrespectful or insensitive, I promise. I'll just use them for an illustration. Picture a Siamese twin. Got it? Year and a half old, picture a one and a half year old, two boys connected, and one dies. But it's 200 years ago, and nobody's around to perform surgery and figure out who, where the spleen goes and the good organs. And that other Siamese is like, it can't even form words, but if it could, it would say, hey, hey somebody separate me from this body of death. Apparently in Tarsus, they tell us, the historians say in Tarsus, which is Paul's hometown, before his time there was an ancient tribe that if you committed murder, the way they executed you was took the dead body that you killed, your victim, and they put you face to face, forehead to forehead, and they connected you forehead to forehead, face to face, chest to chest, arm to arm, body to body, leg to leg, and they strapped you to it, and that's how you died. When that thing's corruption and decay started infecting your body, and where there was one dead body, now there is two. I think that's what Paul is saying is, I want to serve Christ, but this thing inside of me just loves sin. I'm so sick of it. When will somebody, someone, release me from this? I'm dying here. I hate this, but that part of me, and you say, yeah, this man needs to see a psychiatrist. We have a puggle. His name is Harley. Harley's very domesticated. He's not trained. Don't confuse Harley loves people, and he gets quite offended if he's not allowed to be with people. I'm going somewhere with this. Hang with it. If Harley's put behind the gate, he wants to be where the people are. If he's put outside, he wants to be in. He has literally tried. I'll guarantee he's put 10,000 strokes with his paw and claws trying to get in our glass door. We've lived with Harley for eight years, and in that time I've noted a very clear rank. Here's the rank. Deanna is number one. He loves all of us, but she's number one. But if you'll come to our house, he's naturally curious. He'll sniff you and he'll wag and he'll get all down. If you will rub him, you outrank her. Just like that. You're there two minutes. He's been her little baby. Precious baby is his name that she gives. Precious baby. But precious baby will pick you if you'll rub him. So she's number one, but you outrank her because you rub. But watch this. If they have a snack, if they have food, forget you. Thanks for the rubs, but they've got food. That's the rank. Deanna, of all people, equal. But if you'll give rubs, 
you outrank. Uh-oh, if they have food, they outrank. And some of you are saying, that's our dog at our house. I know. But here's the kicker. There's one other vice in this, in this dog. He's a puggle. You say, what's puggle? Half pug, half beagle. I've watched this dynamic that I believe trumps everything I just said. If Harley is laying by the back sliding glass door, two doors made of glass, one slides, and he looks out into his backyard that has a wood fence. If an unsuspecting rabbit meanders into his yard, the beagle comes out. And I mean, I'm talking about literal physical difference happens in this thing. I mean, he looks trimmer. I ain't kidding. He can go in a matter of five seconds from, uh, 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 uh. he's up, he's trim, his ears change, the whole forehead, everything's intense. Literally, you've heard the phrase, the hair on the back of his neck, it, start, it makes a hump, and it's, uh, I mean, he walks out, I mean, it's like, hey, rubs, buddy, they'll give you rub. Forget your rubs. They got a snack. Mama, come to mama. Leave poor little rabbit alone. No, his nature love. I don't know about pugs, but I know beagles love chasing rabbits. And he just, everything, just everything in him takes over. And you know what that sounds like? That sounds like Jeff Bartlett. Ah. Lord, you are so awesome. Right down the road. Oh, this is great. Sin. It is a powerful force. Say, so Jeff, is there any hope whatsoever? Oh, yeah. Your new nature's in there. The old sin. Pull is still in there. But verse number 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ lives inside of us. What's Paul describing? He's talking about a final day of victory. For Jeff Bartlett and any Christian in here, anyone who will become a Christian, when the day will come, and I'm looking forward to this, where I will lay down this body and my soul and my spirit will go immediately to be with the Lord and when the time of the resurrection of the bodies and the dead and all of that happens, I'll receive this body again, but it'll be glorified and it will not love sin. It will not have a desire to sin. And I've heard it said before, can't you wait till the first day goes by and you don't have to confess sin? I am looking forward to that. I hope it, I don't, it, it cannot be a prideful thing, just a grace thing. Lord, look, I don't want to think a prideful thought. Look, I don't, I don't have to confess sin because that may be sin. But Lord, look what you're, you did. You gave me this whole new nature. Christian, listen, if you are saved, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, He has delivered you from the penalty of sin and He is delivering you from the power of sin in this life. But the day will come, your body will no longer want or desire sin. As powerful as it is in this life, it'll be gone. It'll be literally a memory of that earth life. And I, for one, am looking forward to it. Our last verse. See Galatians 6. I'm sorry, it's Galatians 5. Christian, closing this with this for you. The Bible is very clear, Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. There's two separate things. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Who is the you to keep who from doing? Read it again. The desires of the flesh, that strong pull, it is pulling against the Holy Spirit and against your new spirit in Christ. But here's the kicker, here's the good thing. The desires of the Holy Spirit in you, and I could add even your new desire, your new spirit in Christ, it wars against the flesh. So this wars against that part of you, and this wars against that part of you, so that these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing. Here's, here's the culmination. The part of me that loves Christ and the Word and hates sin is never going to be in this life what it could be because that part that is still susceptible to sin will always be there. Christians are to tell you, till the day you die, that's going to be there. But, praise the Lord, just as sure as that happens, if the Bible's true, then the second part of the verse is true. The Holy Spirit in me wages war against that so that the old sin nature never gets to do what it did before. You can never go back and wallow in sin. It keeps me from being the Christian I want to do, but the Holy Spirit in me and my new desires in Christ keep the old sin nature from ever being again what it once was. And those are facts. Those are the facts.
That's what Paul promises. It's two to one. Do the math. Yeah, but the old nature. Somebody here, you got saved. You're 50, you got saved when you're 45. My old sin nature got a 45-year head start on my five-year-old new nature. I get it. It's got a big head start, and that's tough. You got a lot of history. But you got the Holy Spirit. So you, new spirit, coupled with the Holy Spirit, two to one against the old, you will become more like Christ. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Not so much a come forward invitation this morning. I just want to say it this way. Most weeks I plead with people to, if you've never done this, to become a Christian. Why? Because if you don't put your faith in Christ, listen people, if you don't put your faith in Christ, you will go to hell. That is real. We cannot just remove that from the scripture. But this morning, as if that were not enough, I want to invite anyone who's never put their faith in Christ. I want to give you a second reason. Say, why should I put my faith in Christ? Because Christ Jesus is a deliverer. Verse 25 says that He delivers. What hope do I have to be delivered from this? You say, I'm so sick of my sin. You say, I'm not even a Christian, but what I read there, that describes me. And I feel that frustration. I hate what my life has become. I want deliverance from this. Hey, if for no other reason but that, you ought to put your faith in Jesus. Because He will deliver you from sin. Listen, Christian. Christian, you will win the war against sin. That is already determined. You can win the battle. That's Romans 6. Romans 7, you will win the war. Romans 8, you will win the war. Romans 6, you can win the battle. You say, Jeff, I didn't win the battle this week. Were you serving God? Were you busy offering and presenting the members of your body? If you were not, that's why you wallowed in sin. You you fell into that sin. But if you're here this morning and say, Jeff, I'm not a Christian. And based off what you just said and what I've seen in life... Christians are no different than me. You guys face the same struggles. You have the same actions I have. Listen, there's a lot of similarities between us and you, and I'm not trying to draw a chasm between us, but I want to tell you, there are some big differences. Here's the biggest difference. A Christian still battles sin, but they do battle sin. They battle. And the other, the biggest thing, they're already forgiven. They're forgiven of every sin they ever have, ever will commit, and you're not. You're not. I'm not telling you that forgiveness is not available. I'm telling you, you've not received it yet. Jesus died on a cross to pay for your sin debt, to take away the penalty, and to give you guaranteed victory in eternity. You'll be released from sin. It'll not be part of your narrative ever again when you leave this world. And even in this life, you have the power of the Holy Spirit comes inside you to strengthen you you say alright Jeff how do I become a Christian real simple you say do I have to repeat a prayer do I have to come forward listen carefully Jesus said all that the Father gives me shall come to me and he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out Romans 10 says, Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That doesn't mean vocal cords. That doesn't mean externals. That means in your soul, you cry out to the Lord, I want you to be my Savior. I've heard your promise. I receive it. The book of Acts chapter 16, very clear. Couldn't be more clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. You will be saved. So how do I go to heaven, preacher? Right now. Listen. God is literally in this room. He's hovering over you. You can't touch it. You can't visibly see it. But as if he's extending his arm right now saying, I'll give you salvation through what my son did on the cross. Do you want it? And if you will say, I believe it, I'll take it. Right now, you become a Christian. Do it. Christian. Say, Jeff, I've struggled. Don't quit. Don't quit. You win. You win. I promise. Fathers, we stand and sing. Let us sing from victory. And Lord, if one here this morning is unsure of their relationship with you, God, would you please give them the faith or give them the courage to get with us after the service and say, I need to talk with someone.